discover the human mind's a wonderful thing. It starts working the day we're born, keeps on continually until the moment you have to stand up in Bible school and talk. I'm kind of like Brother Glenn Johnson, a little nervous this morning. And uh, I thought, you know, when I came to Bible school this year, I'd kind of play it real coy. I didn't even send a uh, reservation in, hoping that, you know, they wouldn't send you one of these cards. When I got here, I thought, well, you know, I'm going to dodge that fellow's got in charge of this program. And I did pretty good. And I wasn't even going to speak to him until Saturday morning, but yesterday I was coming around a corner and I went into him. It's kind of like uh, not too long ago I had a young fellow cutting the grass for me and uh, he's riding on my, have a small tractor and I have some of these small uh, dwarf fruit trees and he cut one of them down when he was finished. He says, Uncle Chuck, he says, I cut down one of those trees. And I said, well, Barry, what happened? He says, I went around the bush and there it was. <laughs> so I went around the corner yesterday and there was Paul. Here I am, and you all will just relax with me while I try to do my best. Not too long ago, I heard a song. It's uh, on the country and western station at home. And it goes something like this. You got to try to touch the morning. You'll be glad you did someday. You gotta try to touch the morning before it slips away. You gotta taste the sunshine as it hangs there on the trees. Try to touch the morning. Touch the morning on your knees. Now the writer of these words perhaps is trying to make us aware of the beauties of the morning. The exhilarating freshness of the dawning of a new day, such as we've experienced this morning, before the heat has dissipated it all away. This morning, I'd like to make us aware of another morning, the dawning of the millennial day, with all its exhilarating freshness, that we do not let it slip away. For one thing certain in this life, and one thing certain for this earth, is that the need of our Lord and Savior's return, to right all wrongs and to create a freshness unfelt by man since the dawning or his downfall in the garden. His return or his eminent return should be the source of our greatest strength. I'd like to repeat that. His eminent return should be the source of our greatest strength. This is our hope and it should give us strength to maintain any balance in this world today with all the troubles and the cares and the tribulations that are around us and certainly going to beset us soon. But so often we fail at the source of our greatest strength. Often what we consider our greatest human strength causes us to fail. We might give an example of the Apostle Peter. He had this experience and it was a bitter one for him indeed. If you remember the account in Luke of the Last Supper, when Jesus told him of their, his impending doom, Peter declared, Lord, I am ready to go with thee even to prison or to death. Most of us remember what followed. For Jesus told him, This day thou shalt deny me thrice. 
Peter's fidelity to his Lord, what he considered his greatest human strength, failed. It was necessary to be so, though, for we must not rely on the arm of flesh, but our confidence must be in our God. However, Peter, like Moses, who failed in his efforts to enter the promised land, these were only moments, temporary moments of stumbling, not of the final glory yet to be revealed, of both which will have a part. But however, unless we keep this morning in front of us, our failing can be eternal. Anybody here that's associated in the business world today, particularly in the selling field, knows that the requirements of a salesman is to set goals for himself. They tell us that, you know, money is not the thing that motivates every man, although it's way ahead of whatever's in second place. But we need a goal to keep us going in this life. And we're always told not to set it too low, you know, so you'll be lazy, or not to set it too high, something that you can't possibly attain to. And then throughout the year, the bosses very subtly, they find ways to remind you whether you're on schedule for your goal or whether you're keeping up to date. They also put out bulletins, you know, they stick them in every corner very prominent. So to stir up your competitive nature with others of your sales organization. And it doesn't pay to be last on the list either. Or you become the object of a few office managers' discussions. We have a little saying in our office, you know, when you get down in the bottom, he's gone. That means uh, the next thing you know, he's out the door and he's, he's not working there anymore. What I'm trying to say is that the goal that a salesman sets should be something he tries his best to achieve to keep him on the path that he wants to do in his work. As believers, our goals, the only work for our goal in this life, and I like to say that to the young people, the source of our greatest strength is to be part of the glorious throne that will know the beauties of the millennial dawn or morning. And this is being brought out very strongly in our classes this week concerning this multitudinous throng. However, well, how do we keep these things in front of us? Brother Johnson the other morning gave us some good examples, reading, studying, walking in the truth, encouraging one another, attending Bible schools, visiting the sick and the elderly, and by these things are we strengthened. In our reading this morning, Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now for Abraham to see Christ's day, which was 1,500 or more years in front of him, he must have had a mental picture of this glorious morning. He must have had a vision, not certainly of the day of the Lord's degrading death on the cross, but it must have been beyond that, even to the unspeakable joy of his resurrection and glorification, but perhaps even beyond that, to the splendor of the day of blessing to all mankind, the dawn of the millennial morning, when this multitudinous throng with their leader, the Lord Jesus Christ, is a manifestation of deity. We find that Abraham fully understood the implication of the Creator's teaching to him, 
But it's been stated he was strong in faith. He started not at the promise of God through unbelief, but gave glory to God. And he realized that the promises of God and God were resurrection from the dead. And therefore, when he was tried or tested, he offered up Isaac, accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead. So we see that Abraham's vision revolved around the resurrection from the dead, which formed all his hope and all his desire. He was risen with Christ, for he saw him always before him, and he set his affection on things above, not on things of the earth. Knowing that when Christ his life shall appear, he also shall appear with him in glory. Thus his vision or his mental picture, he saw far out the day of Christ. His heart was gladdened. Certainly he was in touch, as we say, with that morning. His vision or seeing is indicated further in the events associated with the offering of his son Isaac, which typified the one great offering and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We find that even the place of the drama is significant, for it later became the site of the glorious temple of Solomon, and later in the same vicinity, Jesus died, God's only begotten Son. In answer to the question, where is the lamb? Abraham declared, God will provide himself a lamb, and as Brother Jim told us the other night, he used the word in Hebrew, Yahweh, Jara or Yara. I like the word Jara for, and I'll give you the reason for it in a few minutes. Or the interpretation could be God will see to the land. Abraham offered his son, but also in type, he received him again from the dead. As the record states, he looked and beheld a ram which God had provided, which he offered in place of Isaac. Now, it's very significant to note that the word he looked here indicates in the Hebrew that he looked with understanding. It implies that he had a greater depth than just looking at the man in the bushes. Abraham revealed then his complete understanding of the typical significance of the event by his subsequent actions. The name Yahweh Jireh, which he called the place as a memorial was a prophetic foreshadowing of that which was to come. Mount Moriah was the scene of these events, and this meant vision of Yah, or chosen of Yah. So to paraphrase this statement, Dr. Thomas says, In the mountain chosen of Yah shall he see the lamb which God will provide for a sacrifice. Thus Abraham's vision or his mental picture was indissolubly linked with the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. This Mount Moriah was just north of the ancient city of Jerusalem. There we know that Abraham met Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of peace, priest of the Most High God. And we remember that Melchizedek had blessed Abraham after the latter's victory against the Confederacy from the north bringing forth bread and wine, and by paying tithe to this king-priest, Abraham recognized the greatness of the one mediator who would be provided 
who would live forever and save to the uttermost those who would come unto God through him. All this typified the future glory for the future man when the antitypical Melchizedek shall bless Abraham and his seed after a notable victory. Thus Abraham's vision included things of the kingdom. He was not lacking a full appreciation of any element of the gospel. Though it is not recorded, it would be very pleasant to think this morning that Abraham visited Melchizedek after the occasion of the offering of Isaac, and to picture these two or three great men discussing these things which form the basis of our hope. We could say that they were really in touch with the morning of the Lord's return. It is most profitable also to observe the moral effects of these things in the life of Abraham and to be guided thereby. By faith, he was separated from all the Chaldees. He left his father's house in hand and became a stranger and a sojourner in the land of promise. He had no continuing city, but sought none to come, for he looked for a city whose foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And he also reckoned that this present sufferings were not worthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed in that glorious morning, and that his light momentary affliction would work out a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. This was a vision that gladdened Abraham's heart, and we could say that this vision gave him peace. We find that Jerusalem thus figured prominently in the life of Abraham. Its oldest scriptural title is Salem, which in the Hebrew means peace, or we probably know it better by Shalom. And this is also prophetic of the city's future destiny. Melchizedek, Melchizedek built there a city, the seat of his throne and the center of true worship, which again is prophetic of his future destiny. Many suggestions have been made regarding the name of this city, Jerusalem, and we find that one writer, the translator of Josephus, suggests the derivation from the words Yahweh or Jahweh Shalom, which means vision of peace. And if you say it real fast, Jahweh Shalom, Jahweh Shalom, Jerusalem, it comes out to be pretty, pretty close. This would follow on to the suggestion of Abraham visiting Melchizedek afterwards, and the king priest memorialized these happenings in the name which he then gave to the city. And this is only speculation, of course. But we can see the essential truth that peace can only be established on the basis of sacrifice. <clears throat> Jerusalem was later occupied by the Jebusites and was called by them Jebus, which meant trodden down. And this name was typical of its degradation being trodden down of the Gentiles for a number of years. We found that David captured the city and then he found then several names were associated with it. Zion or Citadel, or the city of David, or the city of the great king, or Ariel, or the Lion of God, that is the city of the Lion, Lion of Judah. In Revelation, the third chapter, Jesus declares that he has a new name 
And Jerusalem also has a new name, which is a name of deity. This is also revealed in Jeremiah, the 33rd chapter, in the 16th verse, as Yahweh, our righteousness. In Psalms 122, verse 9, as the house of Yahweh. And Ezekiel also indicates Jerusalem will be the dwelling place of Yahweh. Apart from the Gentile name of the city, Jebus, which speaks of the condition of the city in the times of the Gentiles, all these names are prophetic of the divine work of Christ. Speak of Malta being there on which is found a land provided of God of the fortress of the land of strength, who will establish righteousness and peace of the city where Yahweh will dwell. All these titles foretold that out of humiliation would come exaltation for the city and for its king. Abraham's vision then embraced all this, but he fixed his hope steadfastly upon the final glory and the peace to be revealed. Jerusalem, to him and to his seed, was a symbol of hope. It was a vision, Jawa of peace, Shalom. So we find that the man Abraham and the city Jerusalem are linked together as a basis of our hope. While Jerusalem is termed the mother of us all, Abraham is termed the father of us all. We are begotten of them both unto a living hope. And Isaiah in the 51st chapter speaks of this hope. But it can only be said that we have truly been begotten of Zion and of Abraham if we walk in the steps of Abraham's faith. If his motives, his goal, or his vision of peace moves us, and we're told without such a vision, we must surely perish. We're called, as most of us realize, to separate ourselves from the world, maybe from family and friends, to mind not earthly things, sojourning here as strangers and pilgrims, having no continued city but looking in hope and seeing with the eye of faith that holy city, the New Jerusalem, whose builder and maker is God, to have a part in that glorious mountain. In our desire for peace, we remember that there is no peace to the wicked, that there shall be peace in Jerusalem when the vision becomes a reality. I'd like to turn one moment to Isaiah 66, 12. extend peace to her like a river, speaking of Jerusalem, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then shall ye suck, ye shall be born upon her sides, and be downward upon her knees. Meanwhile, as we study in our Bible schools and go back to our homes, let us remember that our worship is not in any way dependent upon material things. In this age, of things as our brother spoke to us the other morning. We do not require elaborate halls in which to give ourselves to God. 
For we're told that the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands. And we find that Abraham offered acceptable worship without the need of a tabernacle or a temple. The temple of Solomon was turned into a den of iniquity and that of herd into a den of thieves. Isaiah speaks of the temple being there ultimately, and Paul says, Ye are the temple of the living God, built upon the foundation of the prophets and apostles, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. Other foundations can no man lay than that is laid which is Christ. He also as living stones are built up as a spiritual house. As Abraham, who had a vision, looking down the line of centuries, using whatever material possessions may come our way, mainly as a means of assisting toward our goal, to our vision of peace, remembering that material things are not in themselves an end, and that our worship is in no way dependent upon them. Paul holds we're all embracing in this scope, for he says, if our earthly house be dissolved, we have a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, another source of great strength. We find that Abraham walked before God, and so he liveth unto God. Christ, spoken of in Romans, died unto sin once, and Paul says he liveth unto God. We are commanded, Reckon ye yourselves also to be dead, indeed unto sin, but alive unto God. By following the commandment, by following this commandment, we will experience the peace of God which passes all understanding, and finally we will receive the blessings of our great King, Priest, and Mediator. We find that Abraham's vision then was linked with first a sacrifice the Lord Jesus Christ typified in his son Isaac, and the resurrection from the dead also in type of Isaac that we received from death, and third, in the establishment of the great city, New Jerusalem, to be capital of the covenant land. The day he saw and rejoiced was the day of his Lord's return, the morning when he and those of like precious faith will sing like stars of the morning the song of Moses in the land. This vision that he had was one of peace, Jireh Shalom. Jireh Shalom. If we say it, as I said before, several times, we kind of have the ring, Jerusalem. And we know that in our hymns that we sing, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Peace be within thy walls and prosperity within thy palaces. This is a morning that we all look for. This should be our goal. This should be our greatest strength. And to paraphrase this song that I heard, I put it in my own words. Try to touch the morning, the morning of our Lord's great day, but not earthly cares beset us but will certainly slip away. Try to taste the sunshine that emanates from Yahweh's sun. Try to greet that morning as a victor that has won. No eye has seen nor can we hear the glory that will burst upon. Try to touch the morning to be with all that happy throng.
Thank you.